Welcome to the Something About Science podcast. My name is Megan from Azo Nano, and I'm joined by Skylar from Azon and Danielle from News Medical. Today we have a special episode lined up for you. We'll be delving into the intriguing field of happiness research and its impact on student mental health. Happiness as a concept has captured the human imagination for centuries. Philosophers, poets and psychologists alike have pondered its elusive nature. What truly makes us happy? And can science unravel the secrets behind this universal pursuit? Our guest today, Professor Bruce Hood, is a leading expert in the field of happiness and psychology. Professor Hood has dedicated his career to studying the intricate workings of the human mind and its connection to well-being. He recently shared his insights in an enlightening interview with newsmedical.net and we highly recommend giving it a read after this episode. In the interview, Professor Hood discusses how his course, The Science of Happiness, is helping to improve student mental health. He sheds light on the challenges faced by students in today's demanding academic environment and how understanding the science of happiness can empower them to thrive. So stay tuned. You won't want to miss this insightful conversation. Please, could you introduce yourself and tell me a bit about your background? Hi, Danielle. My name is Bruce Hood, and I'm a professor of developmental psychology in Society of the University of Bristol. I've had a kind of interesting path. I started off in Dundee in Scotland, where I grew up as a kid, although the accent, as you probably hear, doesn't sound that Scottish, but that's because I traveled the world with my family, and then settled around about the age of eight or nine into Dundee, and then went to school there. But my, uh, my first degree was in psychology way back when I didn't even really know what psychology was. It certainly wasn't as common or as popular a topic back in the 80s uh, when I first took it. But uh, yeah, this was something that interested me. I'd actually, I'd actually wanted to be um, a business person, so I'd um, taken economics and accountancy as a kind of course, but I could do an option. And so I took this thing called psychology, and I became fascinated and fell in love with it. So I uh, decided to train as a psychologist. And I'd done work on babies as my kind of undergraduate project. And I was fascinated by the developing mind and um, how do children grow up into adults. So that was really the core of what I wanted to do. And I was fortunate enough to um, get a position at Cambridge working in a, with a team looking at visual development. And their approach was really from a physiological point of view, which is really the sort of neuroscience aspect of my training. So I studied the development of the eye movement system in very young babies. I did work with babies with brain damage, and I worked on a variety of things. But it was a great training to learn about the physiology and how you could measure that. What is chemically happening in our brains when we talk about that feeling of happiness? It's not actually an easy question to answer because happiness isn't a single kind of mental state. It covers a wide variety of things from bliss, ecstatic bliss, feelings, through to uh, a sense of contentment. I would think that most people are familiar with the idea of there being neurotransmitters which are released. Uh, we, we talk about uh, endogenous opioids, which are those ones which generate feeling. Another one which is very commonly discussed whenever you hear about happiness is dopamine, which is a very common neurotransmitter spread throughout the brain, but it's kind of taken on this role as the pleasure chemical. So I, I think that that's been overstated. It's part of the reward system. So it's certainly involved in those positive experiences. But uh, the research seems to suggest it's actually more to do with wanting rather than liking. So you can draw a distinction between those two types of behavior. You can want something, but not necessarily like it. 
addiction being a classic example that addicts will pursue or want something and then not necessarily get the the high that they they anticipate from it so wanting and liking in the brain are different systems and dopamine appears to be more related to the wanting aspect of it and i, I think it works by salience it kind of triggers or it flags up those behaviors which produce the reward, the greatest reward. So that's why we talk about the, the dopaminergic system, but it's actually found throughout the brain. Yeah, it's a complex question to, you know, a simple question with very complex answers. Yep. So there's a lot going on in the brain and it's not just that commonly perceived idea of the dopamine hit that everyone seems to be chasing. There's, there's more going on there. Yeah. So take opioids, for example. Everyone realizes that, you know, there are centers deep in the brain, the, the sort of the hot spots which we know that various recreational drugs act upon, opioids do. But, you know, you only have to move a millimeter and the effect of that drug is completely different. So it's not the prevalence of a particular neurotransmitter or drug. It's, it's how it's operating on the different systems, which is a better explanation for how pleasure and happiness works. Yeah, amazing. I think people listening will find that really useful because I think often the way the science is communicated around happiness you know, isn't so clear. Uh, also, the complicated nature of it isn't isn't communicated well either. So that's great. So going back to our health, what impact does happiness or sort of the underlying science of happiness, so what's going on in the brain, actually impact our mental health and perhaps even our physical health? Well, of course, happiness is is linked to mental health, is it not? I mean, it's, it's that uh, positive emotional state. And clearly, if you're unhappy, that doesn't necessarily you have a mental health issue. And, and, and so we have to be careful what the words we use. So a mental illness is usually a disorder of some form which requires clinical interventions. I wouldn't go as far to say that that's the same as happiness. Happiness is something that we all experience as a daily fluctuating state of mind. Uh, some things make us unhappy, some things make us happy. So I, I think the relationship with mental well-being is, is kind of clear, but maybe sometimes overstated. What's really interesting, I think, is the research now indicating that these mental states impact on our physical well-being. And we've kind of sort of known that anyway, intuitively, that uh, we don't feel up to our best physical self at times, and that often is linked to our mood. But the really interesting work, I think, is the long-term effects of uh, being unhappy. So there's now work coming out demonstrating that optimism, which is a measure of happiness or uh, being hopeful, for you, for example, that actually plays into our longevity. So studies have shown that there was a study published in 2019 looking at 70,000 people from 1976 to, I think, 2006, so 40 years or so, or 2016 it was. And those who were the most optimistic, they turned out to live longer, about 10 to 15 percent, in other words, 8 to 10 years. And that's really interesting because that sort of is how can the mind or a state of mind like optimism impact on our physical bodies? And I happen to think it must be related to the stress response. So we have within us the body's immune system and uh, we can respond to infections. We have T lymphocytes. We have a set of cells which are activated that can counteract disease. Now, this system is very much tied to our stress response. And if you are overly stressed or you feel that life is never getting any better or everything is a challenge, then this so-called it's a hypothalamal pituitary adrenal system or the HPA, that becomes deregulated. And that means that you've effectively got a faulty, healthy immune system, which means you become more susceptible to those sorts of things which shorten your life. So I think that's probably what's going on when it comes to relationship between happiness and, and physical health. 
I completely agree. I find this area of research so fascinating. And also something I've come across in my own research is the relationship between not only optimism and physical health, but also things like gratitude and kindness as well. I suppose they all sort of intermingle, but that's a particularly fascinating area that I think really good research is is being made in. Yeah, well, I I think gratitude and, and all these positive psychology interventions, they work because I think they get us to go off autopilot. You see, we live our lives very much on autopilot. We have a brain which evolved to seek out problems and pay attention, give it special attention. So there's a negativity bias. And so unless you stop to take stock of where you are and you draw the right comparisons, you can get a very distorted view of your position. And I think that's why positive psychology operates. It it, it stops us being so self-centered or egocentric and taking a much more balanced view of our life. Yeah, definitely. I think you summarised that really well. Couldn't agree more. So you mentioned when you were talking a little bit about your career, about psychology and, the, you know, your particular interest in sort of like child psychology. I was wondering, mm. how do we change psychologically as we grow up and how does that impact our relationship with happiness? Well, funnily enough, I'm actually writing a book on this very topic. and I think that development is the key to happiness. In fact, it's the biggest predictor of adult happiness is childhood happiness. And I think it's really interesting because in general, children are happier than adults, okay? So on a variety of measures, it shows that as they, you know, seven-year-olds are happier than nine-year-olds, for example. And I think what's happening is that when you start off as a young child, you're very egocentric. You're blissfully unaware of uh, many of the problems in the world, and you're the center of attention in most nurturing families. So most children are raised in a very egocentric world where they're the focus of attention, But with development, you get a development of identity and a development of self. So you have to become less egocentric in order to get on with other people. Um, I call that a shift towards being allocentric, which means you can see other people's perspectives. Now, the problem with that is that when you start to be more wary of what other people are thinking, that makes you very self-conscious. And so children become increasingly anxious about their status, how they appear to others. Um, They feel more evaluated by others. So you get a shift from the young child who's been told they're great by their parents. As they move into adolescence, they're now starting to compare themselves to their peers. And as they leave adolescence, they're entering the world of adulthood, where now competition is really important. So you can see that young children are fairly insulated, if you like, from the sort of negativity and the criticism. But as they become more independent, that exposes them to much more negative views and thoughts. And I think that's what's going on. That's why social media has been the the focus of much attention because it amplifies some of the more negative aspects. But I'm not one of those people who say we've got to get rid of social media. I just think we've got to recognize that for individuals who are predisposed because they put a lot of emphasis on what other people think, they're the ones who are going to be most negatively affected when you know the information or the messages are, are not particularly uh, flattering. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear that change in people's relationship to happiness as they develop because I think anecdotally and sort of personally to people individuals you really do feel a shift when you sort of like reach adolescence and teenagerhood the sort of that stereotype of the teenager so it's really interesting to know that you know the science behind that and it makes sense yeah that's true I mean the brain continues to develop well into the 20 to 30s so adolescence really is actually to your mid-20s now although we tend to think about teenage years But the brain is still changing, maturing. And what's changing is the frontal lobe systems and those systems which represent self. So there's a a network in the brain called the default mode network. This is the brain circuitry which kicks into action when you're not focusing on a task. So when your mind's wandering, 
the default mode network becomes overly active. And what does it do? Well, it generates self-representations of where you are and the problems that you're having. So it's associated with negative rumination. So yeah, there is actually some neuroscience behind that. So is that the part of the brain that's involved in sort of our inner speech and our inner dialogue as well? Yeah. So part of that in the prefrontal areas and the areas which represent self are those that are actually triggered by the, the inner monologues. So sometimes it literally is a voice. But in any event, yeah, when we're ruminating, we're tending to think about ourselves in comparison to others. And I also, I also like to think about dreaming. Uh, I always make the point that you never, you always dream from a first person perspective, don't you? The dreams always involve you. You never have dreams that don't involve you. And I think that's just consciousness, that we, we perceive the external world from our internal egocentric viewpoint. And that's, what, that's our default position. So fascinating. I could talk about that all day, but I must go on to the next question. Could you tell me a little bit about the course that you're head of and sort of like set up the science of happiness? And actually, before you start answering, I was actually at university when I think the science of happiness was piloted, perhaps. It was a couple of years ago now. I I went to Cardiff University, so not too far away from Bristol. And it was sort of like announced that the science of happiness was happening and also the the podcast that was on uh, BBC as well. Uh, So I just thought I'd let you know that I, you know, even... Even before this interview, I was uh, aware of it. And actually, when I was researching potential interviewees, I came across your profile and was like, oh, what a small world that, you know, I, uh, I came across your work before. It was even smaller than that. So uh, I will say that actually we ran a smaller version at Cardiff University and it went down very well. So That might have been it, yeah. Yeah. We were just interested in whether or not we could actually transport to other universities. But uh, you, you said it's a small world. Well, I'll give you another example of how small that world is. You see, I, I teach developmental psychology, so I do child development, brain uh, development and that stuff. But I actually, about six years ago, I decided that I needed to do something about the student well-being because they were more preoccupied with their marks than actually enjoying a period of life, which I found, you know, I loved being a student. That's why I still in, in academia. So I was really disappointed that they weren't enjoying it. And there was all this talk about mental health issues. So I looked around to see if there was anything that could be done. And by coincidence, a former student of mine who I had taught when I was at Harvard, Laurie Santos, She's had this meteoric rise. She's now head of a, um, a residential college at Yale. And uh, she had put a course on at the time called Psychology in the Good Life. And it was all about positive psychology. So I contacted Laurie and I said, that sounds great. Can, you know, can we share slides and that? And so Laurie and I ended up collaborating and we've been working ever since to put together a course. The one I did is somewhat different to Laurie's, but very much based on her approach, which is the science. So there's a lot of positive psychology out there, but I think it's really important to sort of wade through what's good and what's bad science and what is just hearsay or you know opinion. And so the course is really the combination of different approaches. So I talk about the neuroscience, the psychology, but also I'm interested in the philosophy about mind and I'm interested in the history and the economics of happiness? Why does it impact on GDP and other measures of an economy? So we give a course which is very broad and it's open to first-year students who uh, can take open units. So at Bristol, if you have room in your timetabling, they can take another additional course for credit. Where my course is entirely unique as far as I'm aware is that students earn credit on our course and there are no graded examinations. And the reason I did that was because it felt hypocritical 
to uh, lecture to students about the dangers of examination stress and all that, and then give them an examination. So we've developed a course which is entirely based on engagement. And so it's not just lectures. They have to turn up on a regular basis, and they meet in small groups that we call happiness hubs, which are mentored by third-year students who we've trained to run small groups. And in those groups, they do activities and the, the things that we recommend during the lectures. We also get them to do weekly journals. And we also measure their happiness at the beginning of the course and at the end of the course. And that's how we've been able to establish that this course has positive impact and benefits on their own mental well-being. So it's not just an academic lecture course. It's a mixture. And uh, it's proving very successful. We run and currently we have an intake of 500. So we're kind of limited by the, the size of the lecture rooms that we can have. That's so fascinating. I've got a couple of points there. Firstly, I'm actually currently reading a book about the sort of theory of mind at the moment. It's um, Other Minds by Peter Godfrey Smith okay. about octopus intelligence, uh, cephalopod mollusk intelligence and sort of theory of mind. Really fascinating book. <laughs> and then my second point is um, that this is open to first years. And that's really important because often that transition to university is so difficult. I was just wondering from your research, what have you noticed about student mental health in general? What What's the state of student mental health at the moment? Well, it's not great. And that's kind of the reason I was motivated to do this. And in fact, I'm spending all my time now dealing with mental health issues because of the size of the problem. I'm thinking about ways that we need to roll out to every first year student because I think the problem starts really early on in the educational system. And I think we've really got it wrong. I feel that we're not preparing students for university the way that we educate is, is very much in a kind of competition way. So you've got to get the top grades to get into university. So the schools are training um, the students up to get in the best grades possible, which is fine. But then this leads to certain expectations when they hit university, which is very different to school because it's much more self-directed learning. It's much more independent. I think the students are really struggling with that. And the clash and the transition to university, I've noticed it's got worse since certainly the introduction of fees. And that's another problem. I think that students are coming in as consumers rather than learners. And so they want to see value for money. And, and so the whole atmosphere of university, I think, has changed significantly in the past 10 years. But mental health is still the probably number one concern for most of them. They want to do well, but what they fail to realize is that in their you know, in their efforts and their perfectionism often, this can be so counterproductive. And frankly, you know, I think it's much more important to train the next generations about how to deal with adversity, how to deal with develop resilience. The world is unpredictable. And, you know, whilst learning content is all very well, and don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-information or anti-learning, but I just think it has to be done in a way which is conducive to well-being. And I think that's missing at the moment. Yeah, completely agree. And you just said there that, you know, the world is unpredictable. Obviously, over the last few years, we've had the COVID-19 pandemic and that impacted students, you know, a lot. I was yeah. I was one such student that, you know, it really impacted. You know, we went to hope we went to remote learning, et cetera, remote examinations. How have you noticed COVID-19 and the COVID-19 pandemic impacting student well-being, mental health? Yes. Well, I mean, the data is coming in now and it's quite clearly it had a very negative effect. And part of that was the social isolation. You know, we're a social animal. And, uh, you know, if you isolate us, even though you've got Zoom and all this other technology, the, the nature of the social interactions is very different and it doesn't have the same quality. So that 
has had an impact. Then, of course, there's the financial crisis, which has compounded that as well. We were just actually asking our students just recently about their concerns, and financial crisis is now figuring very prominently alongside with mental health. So I think the students are just reacting to what's currently going on, and, and the pandemic wasn't good for anyone in many ways. So I, so I think you know, we are still a resilient species. We will come out of it, we'll bounce back. And I'm an optimist. And so I, I feel there's always opportunities wherever there are their problems. So hopefully anything that we're seeing will start to settle up. I do think, though, what's interesting is that the conversation has changed. So mental well-being used to be considered a kind of flaky area, a liberal area, leftist area. Now people are recognizing how much it impacts on economic productivity. So I think businesses are starting to wake up to the fact that this is really an important issue. And if, if we can make a happier workforce, they'll end up being more productive, which is at the bottom line for most companies. Yeah, definitely. I was just wondering as well, from the Science of Happiness course, have you been able to collate any data and sort of organize your findings in a way that people could take home some real lessons? So, for example, anything that you've noticed from the study that people can implement into their day-to-day lives to help improve their happiness, their mood, their well-being? So we publish our research in scientific journals, which is not really aimed at the general public. As I said, I'm working on a book which will summarize some of the findings, but I will be honest, there's nothing I am saying that hasn't been said before. But what is different, and I think this is an important point, that knowledge is not enough. You can watch as many TED Talks or read as many self-help books. It's not going to make a shred of difference unless you actively engage in it. So the take-home message is knowledge isn't enough. You have to act. And that's why our course is based on active engagement. For example, we just looked at the students who had taken the course two years ago to follow them up because we'd found improvement in mental well-being over one semester. But what I was really interested in was there any long-term benefits of it. And when we looked at the long-term benefits, we found that as a group, most of the students went back down to their baseline measures again. So the the benefits they had sort of adapted or subsided. Except for those students who had stuck with the activities, about half of them continued to do the gratitude letters, continued to do the meditative meditations and all these exercises. And those students, they had the benefit of the course, and that was sustained at two years. So... Use it or lose it. You know, if you don't actually, it's like physical exercise. If you don't keep up with the program, you'll go back to your baseline again. So I suppose that's the one take home message. Yeah, well being is a muscle that you have to exercise to sort of reap the rewards, essentially. Yeah, and just like muscle, you're not going to suddenly become strong picking up the heaviest weight. It takes time, it takes continual effort, it has to become a habit. And once you do that, it becomes second nature. So you don't think about it so much. Yeah, I was going to use the analogy of muscle memory. Perhaps if, you know, for whatever life circumstances, you perhaps lose a habit, a healthy habit. When you come back to it, do people find that it's easier to sort of like regain that habit once you've already established it, if that makes sense? Well, it takes a culture. It takes a climate. I think as individuals, we lead busy lives, or at least we think we lead very busy lives. So we don't prioritize that. And that's unfortunate. So I think we shouldn't put it solely on the individual. We should consider about how society should try and build it into its structure. Completely agree. It's not always down to the individual. So a bit more of a general question to sort of end and sum up. But for you personally, how do you believe we can create a happier and kinder world? Okay, well, that's the big one, isn't it? I think we need to look to the Nordic countries. So in the World Happiness Reports, there are four countries which typically top the league tables of of so-called happiness. Now, 
Whether they are using the word happiness in the same way we do is maybe debatable. But what I do think is interesting, in the societies which seem to be working well, what they've established is good government, accountability, and importantly, social support. So they have high taxation, but then that is used to good effect to support society at large. And I think once you have those things built into society, then happiness and contentment, or at least less of a fear of uncertainty, will ensue. So as I said, I don't think you can put it all on the individual. I think you need to be living in a world where we're less egocentric, less individualistic, more accountable, not just in terms of you know our happiness, but also our materialism. The sorts of goals that we set ourselves, I think, are somewhat misguided by commercial interest. And so we've got to understand that really to get a balanced society, it works not only at the individual, but right at societal levels as well. And that means changing the way we look after each other. Yeah, definitely. And finally, what's next for you and your research? Well, I have been so impressed at the way this course has been adopted. And, you know, the mentors I was mentioning, those third year students, most of them are graduates from the first year. They stay with the course. I think that universities should start to recognize the power of peer-to-peer learning. I want to try and get Bristol to adopt other courses, which I think will empower students with life skills that they can take into the world of work. So I'm thinking about financial literacy being another example, organizational skills, presenting skills. These are all things which I think will be of great value to students. So I'm working on structures and strategies to get the university to make room in the curriculum for what I think are generic skills that we could all do with. Yeah, honestly, Coming from a recent student myself, I think that they're really great ideas and I hope they come into fruition because it's definitely very much needed. All myself and my peers, we've all spoken about the things that you've just mentioned, sort of like financial literacy and such and how beneficial it would be uh, to us. Uh, So yeah, you've you've got the student support there. Great. That's the last of my questions. I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak to me. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed listening, please think about leaving a review on your podcast provider, sharing this episode on social media, or with friends, family, and colleagues you think might enjoy it as well. This episode was brought to you by Azo Network. We'll be back soon with more discussions about science.